Welcome back again to Parkside Green's Bible Study. I'm Pastor Steve, and this week we're going to explore a tale of two buildings from 1 Kings chapter 7. Uh, each building, Solomon's palace and Solomon's temple, tells an important story. And we're going to organize our study around four headings, followed by a few possible applications. First, we'll look at the royal residence in verses 1 to 12. And then secondly, we'll look at fabulous furnishings in verses 13 to 50. Thirdly, we'll look at David's dedication in verse 51, also borrowing a bit from 1 Chronicles 28 and 29 in that section. And fourth and finally, we'll look at some temple trajectories uh, with an eye to the future. So we begin then with our very first look at the royal residence in verses 1 to 12. Uh, you'll remember that when we left off last week, the final verse of chapter 6 told us that Solomon took seven years to build the temple. And now in the very next verse, with no chapter divisions in the original Hebrew, we are told that Solomon took 13 years to build his own house. Now, we cannot say for sure what the significance is here, right? Solomon's house, or really the entire administrative and residential complex, was much bigger than the temple. And that may account for it taking nearly twice as long to build. Or it may be, maybe, that we are meant to see an indication of Solomon's divided heart in the fact that he spent nearly twice the time building his house or palace complex, as he did building God's house, or the temple. And again, we can't be sure. But what we do know for sure is that the palace complex was big and it was beautiful. To help us picture what the words are describing, I asked Tim Keene, who has some secret sketching and art skills you may not know about, to draw up a blueprint of what the words in this chapter describe. And... Here it is, the international opening of Tim's sketch. It starts out with what is called the House of the Forest of Lebanon down here, and it's about 150 feet by 75 feet. Just this area, the House of the Forest of Lebanon, is over four times as large as the temple proper. And it has so much cedar in it, it's got 45 cedar pillars if you count them there, uh, cedar beam, cedar above, uh, that it's actually named after the forest that the cedar came from in Lebanon. And if you skip ahead to 1 Kings 10, verses 16 and 17, you'll see that this was the room where Solomon put hundreds of golden shields. So it served as kind of a treasury, right, with all that gold in there, and also as a sort of an armory with all those shields in there. And then on the far right, this would be the east side, we have the Hall of the Throne or the Hall of Judgment where Solomon would administer justice. He'd hand down wise judgments, right? Like we heard earlier with the, the women and the baby. And in between, we have the Hall of Pillars, which by itself, just this area is slightly bigger again than the temple. And apparently it served as kind of like a colonnade or a thoroughfare from the public halls to the residential area where we have Solomon's personal house where he lived and also the house of Pharaoh's daughter over here whom he had married. Uh, not sure where those other wives are gonna end up living, 
but she's got her own place, Pharaoh's daughter, right there in the temple complex. And we're told several times that in constructing this area, they used costly stones that were cut to measure, sawed down very finely with huge foundation stones that were like 12 and 15 feet in size. They would have weighed several tons. And if we've interpreted it correctly, there was also an outer courtyard called the Great Court, which led then to the more restricted sort of priestly area uh, of the temple. Now, of course, an ordinary Hebrew could offer a sacrifice and worship by the great altar, but the temple itself, that was the domain of the priests. So we move now then from the royal residence in verses 1 to 12 to the fabulous furnishings of the temple area in verses 13 to 50. And to fashion those fabulous furnishings, King Solomon sent to bring Hiram or Hurim, uh, for, in the NIV, from Tyre. And we've seen that name or a variation of it before, right? But this appears to not be Hiram, the king of Tyre, who's probably still just busy dealing with all the wheat and oil that he got in the, the food for wood deal back in chapter 5. This Hiram that we read about, we're told, had a Jewish mother and apparently a Gentile father who likely taught him all about the bronze trade. Hiram's resume was the best. I mean, he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. And he came then to do all of Solomon's bronze work here. And there's a close parallel, I see, between what Hiram did here in the temple and what Bezalel did in the tabernacle about 500 years earlier. If you read in Exodus 31 and Exodus 35, you'll see that the Lord filled Bezalel with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs and work in gold, silver, bronze, cut stones, carve wood. So we see whether it's Hiram here in the temple or Bezalel earlier with the tabernacle that tradesmen and tradeswomen can use their God-given wisdom and skill for God-ordained purposes. Use your God-given wisdom and skill for God-ordained purposes. And then are just a few highlights from the, the fabulous furnishings. You can think about, first of all, these two pillars of bronze here. Uh, they're 18 feet in circumference, right? So that would be like three adults stretching and barely touching their fingertips around the thing. They're 27 feet high, and then apparently they've got double capitals on top of that of lattice work and lily work that really push them pretty close to the top of the 45-foot high ceiling. They're decorated with hundreds of pomegranates in rows all around, and they even have names. <laughs> they call this one Jachin, uh, which probably means God will establish, and they call this one Boaz. Uh, which means in him is strength. So they're reminders about being established in God, finding our strength in him. And they're also, you can see, gateposts to the entryway to the actual temple itself. Or you can think about also another fabulous furnishing, which is this sea of cast metal. It had a diameter of about 15 feet and a circumference all the way around a 45 feet. So Tim made it big kind of to scale here. 
It was supported by 12 bronze oxen, three facing in each direction, you can see. And of course, it was decorated, in this case, with gourds. Uh, it held some 12,000 gallons of water <laughs> that the priest could use for washing. And that, that's like the water you would find in a 23-foot round pool that was four feet deep. Second Chronicles 4.6 tells us this huge basin was for the priest to wash in. And you can imagine all the ash and the blood that they would have got on them in their duties and their need to wash up. <laughs> then there were also 10 smaller basins represented here, five to the south and five to the north, uh, which held about a fifth of the water that the big one had. Uh, but that's still like 240 gallons each. And uh, that's the amount that you might find in our church baptismal pool or if you had an inflatable hot tub about that size. And these 10, what we might call smaller basins, literally held a ton of water, 2,000 pounds of water each, which is why they had to be on rolling stands, right, with wheels and rims and spokes and hubs and axles, and because you had to put your shoulder to it to move them around. And of course, they were decorated, right, with lions and oxen, cherubim, palm trees, wreaths, even functional items like those basins had beautiful symbolic elements. They were useful and they were attractive. Maybe there's a lesson there. They were useful and they were attractive. Well, why would you have 10 small hot tubs worth of water on wheels they were needed to, to rinse off animal parts for the burnt offerings. Remember, Israel is just now, for the first time, getting their lasting temple in Jerusalem, where all approved sacrifices are to be made. We're not going to sacrifice on those old high places anymore. Not supposed to, anyway. And speaking of sacrifices, there's going to be a lot of animals cooked on this huge 15-foot by 30-foot altar that's mentioned in the next chapter. A church, if you were to take a look at the carpeted area in the front office and double that, that would be the size of this altar of sacrifice, which would produce, as you can imagine, a lot of ash and remains from bulls, sheep, goats, rams, birds that needed to be cleaned up, right? So Hiram made pots and shovels and equipment to, to keep the altar running smoothly. He did all the bronze work, Hiram did, and he used so much bronze, they didn't even bother keeping track of how much it all weighed. <laughs> but in verses 48 to 50, we're told that Solomon oversaw all the work in gold. Interesting, right? The golden altar, probably the one for incense, which was in the temple, or the golden table for the bread of the presence, symbolizing God's constant presence there. Uh, the ten golden lampstands, they would light up the interior of the temple, right? Which, remember, was all overlaid in gold, and so it would just be splendorous and glorious as these ten lamps glittered uh, in the gold. Not to mention gold flowers, tongs, cups, snuffers, incense dishes, fire pans, even the door sockets were gold. And they may not mean much to us today, but they were fabulous furnishings. And Maybe a reminder to us to give the Lord our best in worship. That brings us to the last verse of this chapter, verse 51, where we're told that Solomon brought in the things that David, his 
father had dedicated silver and gold and on all the vessels. Uh, my wife Sue reminded me this week, thank you Sue, of how David's dedication is found in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, a kind of a parallel passage. And, and there in Chronicles we learn that this was not just Solomon's temple as we sometimes call it. Many, many people had a hand in this temple before Solomon ever got involved, right? It started with the Lord. It started with the Lord who made the plan for all the work to be done clear to David. The temple plans came by the hand of the Lord so that David actually had them in writing and he gave the plans to Solomon who then carried them out. David also funded the temple by giving tens of thousands of pounds of gold and silver out of his personal treasury, not out of government funds, his personal treasury. And David's extremely generous example then inspired other leaders and the people to give even more than David did. So the fundraising and the plans were all in place. It was the Lord's temple working through David and Solomon and the people. And there was a fascinating temple trajectory in the years ahead. See, the temple was central to Jewish worship and culture for a thousand-year period. It symbolized, of course, the holy dwelling place of God, in particular in the Holy of Holies here with the large cherubim overshadowing it. Solomon's temple lasted for right around 400 years before it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. But even when they were in exile in Babylon, the people directed their prayers to the temple. And after they returned from exile, the Israelites built a replacement temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And that one lasted for over 500 years. This is a period known as Second Temple Judaism, because they were worshiping in the Second Temple. Before Herod then dismantled that temple to build his own temple. <laughs> and that's what's happening in Jesus' lifetime, right? Herod is still in the process of building his temple right on the same spot. And that included, you'll remember, a marker warning Gentiles to proceed no further, right? On pain of death penalty. Herod's temple, interestingly, wasn't actually finished until 64 AD, and then ironically was destroyed by the Romans just six years later in AD 70. Well, the temple played a prominent role in Jesus' life. I mean, consider when Joseph and Mary presented Jesus at the temple, as they were supposed to. Remember Simeon takes him in his arms and he prophesies about how Jesus would bring God's salvation to people. He'd be a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of the Lord's people, Israel. And then, of course, you think of when he was 12 years old. Jesus stayed behind in the temple, asking questions, listening to the teachers, amazing them with his understanding. Jesus knew, even as a preteen, that he must be in his father's house, which was the temple. He taught regularly. He, he debated in the temple. You read about that in the Gospels. Zeal for God's house consumed Jesus. So when the temple was desecrated, right, when people were making what was supposed to be a house of prayer into a house of trade, a, a den of robbers, Jesus cleansed it. 
right? And when he was challenged about that, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, we know from John 2, he was speaking about the temple of his body and the resurrection. But toward the end of his ministry, when his disciples commented on the wonder of the temple and all those huge stones glittering white in the sunshine, Jesus declared that all of its huge stones would be thrown down one day. Right? There wouldn't be one left on top of another. And Jesus' opponents knew he was making extraordinary claims about himself in relationship to the temple, and they charged him with blasphemy. They actually brought that point up at his kangaroo court trial. As Jesus' followers today, we understand the temple represented God's presence on earth, but that Jesus is the fullness of God's presence in bodily form. In Matthew 12, 6, Jesus said of himself, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The temple was great, but it was temporary, and it had restricted access. Gentiles could only go so far, and ordinary Hebrews could only go so far, and priests who weren't the high priests could only go so far. They couldn't go behind the curtain right, in the Holy of Holies, unless you were the high priest. But when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain, that veil in the temple was torn in two. It was split from top to bottom. It was no human thing. It was God rending it open, showing that Jesus provides full access to God for all who put their trust in his Son. No restrictions now. And that brings us to some applications. Number one, I think, it tells me this chapter, make sure I'm not spending more time and resources on my own comforts and pleasures than I am on God and his kingdom. Make sure we're not spending more time and resources on our own comforts and pleasures than we are on God and his kingdom. Secondly, whatever our areas of wisdom and understanding and skill, and we all have different areas of expertise, use our God-given talents to serve and worship the Lord with our very best. So whatever your areas of wisdom, understanding, and skill, use your God-given talents to serve the Lord and worship the Lord with your very best. Thirdly, praise God that through Jesus, we have full access. We can draw near to God's throne to receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Praise God through Jesus, We now have full access, no restrictions. We can draw near to God's very throne to receive mercy and grace in our time of need. Well, let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you for who you are, a God of mercy and grace, a holy God who has provided a way for sinners like us to approach you through the righteousness of your Son. We are amazed that your people worshipped you at the various temples for over a thousand years, but we are even more amazed that your followers no longer have to go to Jerusalem to worship you. We can worship you in spirit and truth wherever we find ourselves on the earth. So, Father, stir our hearts, we pray, that each of us might serve you and worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength through your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen.